And I remember I couldn't even get my resume seen because people were sending it back saying, you don't have minimum bachelor requirements. So we can't, you know, we can't, this job requires that. So you don't get through the system. That was in the cases where I actually emailed the, the HR people directly to say, what's going on? How come no one's getting back to me? So I assume sometimes I wouldn't even get that far because the resume just goes into the rejection pile by default. So, and I don't think my experience is, is unusual. Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses. Hey everyone, this is Ian from Unincorporated, and I wanted to welcome you to another edition of the Higher Ed Happy Hour. Today, I'm here with Christopher Zara. Christopher is a senior editor at Fast Company, where he runs the news desk, and was previously a deputy editor for the International Business Times. Christopher Zara is also the author of a new book titled Uneducated, a memoir of flunking out, falling apart, and finding my worth which shares his experience as a high school dropout in the elite world of New York City media. Today, we're going to be talking to Christopher about how a lack of access to higher education limits people's options, why attitudes around degree requirements are changing, and what that means for colleges. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So let's talk about your memoir, Uneducated. Uh, obviously, this is a very personal account of you mm-hmm. navigating the professional world without that uh, coveted college degree. Um, yes. What are what are some of your insights just from that journey that may shed light on the challenges that you faced? I came from a pretty working class background where not going to college, not even finishing high school in many cases, um, was not unusual. In that respect, my, my story wasn't that unusual. I uh, had some behavioral issues in high school and made it to 11th grade before they finally threw me out. I did manage to get a GED that same year, but I I really didn't go very far when it came to schooling. And I kind of sort of, I I sort of wandered around for the next decade or so. I I got into some problems with drugs and, and worked a lot of retail jobs and just sort of spent that entire decade, really up until I was in my early 30s, trying to, you know, figure out what I was going to do with my life. Uh, It wasn't until I came to uh, New York City at the age of 35 and decided to take an unpaid internship at a a newspaper that I learned the the craft of journalism, essentially. So I I learned really on the job through that internship. It was a really small newspaper, and I eventually got a staff job there. And having a staff job at that small newspaper really gave me uh, experience doing just about anything there was to do at a newspaper. So I learned a lot at that small publication in New York City. I worked there for about six years and sort of used that as a springboard to other journalism jobs. Throughout my career, I've been in the game for now about 20 years, uh, it occurred to me that my my background was really different in media, that most people who work in media, who work as journalists, you know, they, they, they go to school for it. They don't necessarily go to school for journalism, but they go to some school. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's it's often very good schools. Uh, my colleagues are very frequently, you know, graduates of Ivy League universities, uh, J schools like Columbia, you know, Northwestern, that kind of thing. 
And the contrast between them and my, and my own background really became noticeable to me the, the, the farther along I went. So the more I became like a senior editor and was in charge of hiring and in charge of managing people, the more my background stood out to me. And I thought there was a perspective there that was worth sharing um, about education itself. When I, when I looked at a lot of the research and a lot of the literature on the education divide, obviously a lot of it is written by people who went to college, which makes sense because those are the, those are the academics who studied this kind of thing. But I really did think there was a, I thought there was room for, for a story about education and about college from someone who didn't benefit from it like I did. Um, and so that was the, that's the main thrust of the book and the main idea behind it. Yeah. Well, you've overcome such significant hurdles in terms of perception and yeah, how that kind of cultural identity is is shaped within the professional world and, and how it hinges or depends on, you know, what school you went to, the faculty right. maybe that you engaged with, what kind of publishing maybe that you've you've done up until the point where you start your career. But this idea that you felt compelled to tell a side of the educational divide or a perspective of the uneducated and those challenges. Mm-hmm. And I'm using air quotes here because that in itself, I think, is a, is a misnomer, the uneducated, right? Yeah. And it's sort of the point of the title. I mean, it's obviously meant to be air quoted when, when you say it. I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't, I wouldn't legitimately call anyone, someone uneducated. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of the point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's probably other cases within the market where books on, you know, a, a particular topic are written by the academics or, you know, by yeah. those who don't have firsthand experience. So I, th- I think that's quite noble that you, that you went out and, and shared that perspective. I know that the book explores how education defines and shapes our identities and, and really shapes kind of the the, the value that's associated with our identities. And, you know, that's both cultural, societal. I think we, we learn of that maybe less now uh, in the gig economy than we once did, but we learn of that through our families. You know, can you just elaborate a little bit more on how the perception of education in society influences those individuals? Yeah, I mean, this sort of the, the sort of ironic thing is even someone like myself w- with no real formal education, I'm still defining myself around education as a quantity, and and the reason that is, I think, is because I'm. In my case, it's a little different because I'm surrounded by people all day long who are college graduates. So I I see firsthand uh, through their experiences what college brings to the table. And in a lot of ways, it really made me realize what I'd missed out on as someone who didn't go to school because I was forced to work shoulder to shoulder with with such highly educated, you know, maybe quote unquote highly educated, but people who are, are who went all the way in school, in school. So, um, you, you know, being on sort of the margins of society as someone who didn't, uh, didn't really finish high school, um, and being forced to, to kind of intermingle through the profession of journalism was really what showed me how the education has this power. Um, I was so scared for the topic of edu- education to come up in my newsroom that I would, you know, sometimes like slither or sneak away. If like, I heard people talking about like where, where they went to school or, 
different aspects of their college experience. Like I knew that the subject might come around to me and someone would be like, hey, Zara, where did you go to school? And like, you know, most people I worked with didn't know because they don't look at your resume when you're, when you're kind of thrown in with them. So they might, unless they're looking me up on LinkedIn, they, they might not know. And I was just terrified that the subject would come up and I would have to sort of overly explain this backstory of mine. Yeah, that must have created a lot of stress and anxiety at times. I could only imagine yeah, and I'm anxiety prone to to begin with, so it, right. it didn't yeah. it didn't help. We I'm all? sweating right. I'm sweating right now just having this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because it's you know it's a balmy 90 degrees in in New York City right now. That's true. Yeah, that, that doesn't help the situation. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. So obviously, you internalized that feeling and that anxiety, and you said you were terrified that this subject may come up within the yeah. professional setting. But did you also feel distinctly different from those colleagues of yours that those peers that were again air quotes educated or at least had gone to college or Ivy League like did you feel it from a from a professional standard did did you feel different than them I I did at times I think it really depended on what what we were covering you know politically I probably aligned with most of the, most of them on most things you know just I think that there's this um uh, you know, this somewhat false narrative that, that journalists are all uh, the same political stripes, uh, maybe some truth to it. I found that, you know, maybe 80% of the time if we were writing stories, there was not any sort of conflict. But there were times, I, I think, as I write in the book, like especially during the early Trump era, like that, it became apparent that the white, quote unquote, white working class was going to be part of the narrative of this election of 2016. You know, I fall into that category by by definition, because that's the, the category that was being defined as white people without college degrees. That's me. But I didn't feel that those articles necessarily accurately um, described me or most people that I know. So I do, I thought I think there was a bit of a conflict there. I was also again in a you know in a position there to really and I wasn't in a position there to really do much to change it because I I was again afraid I think I was a little bit afraid to to rock the boat. So I did sort of in a lot of ways uh, toe the line with with the coverage. But so yeah, to, to answer your question, there were there were times when coverage would demand a certain point of view, and I and I felt that that the uh, that the perspectives were were different. Mm-hmm. How about in terms of like skills or capabilities or one's like critical thinking ability? Did you feel that you were on equal ground with those that had attended higher education? Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a tough question. I think it's hard to evaluate yourself. I, I can say that having learned most of what I do on the job, there were definitely moments when I felt like I should know this thing, but I don't. And often those were cultural references, which the, the stakes are kind of low with some of this stuff. Like a, maybe it's a cultural reference about a website that everyone read in college. I remember this website called The Toast, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, the millennials loved it. And it was, I, it was a, I think it was good going out of business at some point. And I was like, what is this thing? Why don't I even know about it? So there were definitely little moments like that. I think on the flip side of that, I, you know, I learned certain elements of, of the profession by reading it up on it myself, like, you know, AP style or, or you know, the, the philosophy on, on plagiarism or, or different aspects that you need to know when you, when you work as a journalist. Um, these were things that I just had to learn on my own 
I, I, you know, I, I didn't see a whole lot of evidence that the college educated journalists knew some of that stuff any more than I did. So yeah, I guess it would depend. Yeah. It's a fair answer. How about in terms of making it a strategic advantage or in some way like giving you an upper hand in critical thinking or developing a perspective for, for a piece? I, yeah. I know that that's an advantage in, in the case of the book, right? Because you have firsthand experience on this topic. But how about within the professional world and, and how you approached your work assignments? Did you feel like you had an advantage at any point? If I could, if I could view this objectively, it's really hard to do. But the, some, some of the big, I think the biggest advantage that I had counterintuitively was the, the fear of not belonging there. And that really made me want to work harder. And it often made me, it meant staying late. It meant, it meant working, it meant doubling down on, on assignments and, and doing more than was necessary. This was especially true during my first job because I had to put up with, I had to put up with like, you know, a, a boss that was sort of unstable and no one could, could deal with this guy. And like the constantly people, you know, people would be in and out of that office and be like, I just can't work here. I can't work under these conditions. For me, it was like, I didn't have a choice. I have to figure this out and I have to do it. And I think in that case, it was a real advantage. I think I did take some of that. I hate to use the word grit because that sounds like I'm giving myself a compliment. But, you know, I think I took some of that grit to, to my future jobs as well. And journalism is a scrappy business. I mean, there's it, it's always on the cusp of being disrupted by technology or by competitors or by something. So I do think there is an advantage to feeling like um, to feeling that sense of urgency that this is not you're not owed this career and it could end at any time. And so you need, you really, really need to be on your best game as much as you can. I, I can't speak for people directly who went to, to school for journalism, but I can say that if you study it and you spend a couple of years um, in a classroom learning it, and then you go out and you start doing it, maybe there's a, a more of a sense of, you know, of course I'm doing this job. I went to school for it and here I am and I, and I deserve to be here. Whereas in my case, it was the opposite. I always had the sense that I didn't deserve to be there. And that I think that did make me probably feel like I had to work a little bit harder at times. Yeah, that's great. You turned it into a superpower. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I like to kind of look at it that way. I don't know if that's the whole truth, but I, I yeah, I, I think that it, it definitely came in handy. Yeah, well, it clearly motivated you to work harder, as you put it, and maybe gave you a little resistance or, or buffer to that sensation of, of entitlement. And yeah. in, in the end, maybe you learned faster and, and produced better work, you know, once you made that transition from kind of the, uh, the personal world into the professional persona. And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights, and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our higher education news brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now back to the discussion. These days, the power of education or the, the power of higher ed to really define who people are, I, I feel like that's diminishing, especially with the rise of, you know, content creators on a um, somewhat, you know, decentralized, although it's usually found within social media, but, you know, a decentralized marketplace where anyone can become kind of like a, a financial 
capitalist or, or a capitalist or a producer of some in some way, and they can define themselves around their influence. Do you think that that is inherently a a, a good thing that the higher ed is maybe not as coveted as this is the path and this is the trajectory that you need to go to be successful? Uh, I do think it's good. I think that the first thing I would say on that is I, I never wanted the book Uneducated to come off as being anti-college. Um, mm-hmm. If you really look at what I'm trying to say, the story is really about how it's the exact opposite. Like, I understand why education is so important, having not had it. That being said, I do think that like there, it, to me, the, the job, not just the job market, but society in general has been skewed a little too far in the direction of making college this important attribute that everyone had to have. That, is, that was especially apparent. I think it was supercharged after the, the 2008 financial crisis when there was really this shift to, of employers demanding college degrees. And I think we're, if we shift back a little bit um, and give some power back to people who, who didn't go to college and and have alternative pathways like I, I think that that's good uh, I, I do I do think it's good I think there should be room for both types of of uh, of learning in in the world yeah and what would you say then to the the dean or the president of a university that that hears that perspective that hey it's it's okay that your school isn't the first choice or isn't a necessity for success do you, do you have any perspective that, that you would share with that dean or words of advice on how to adapt to this this trend? Yeah, I think I mean this is probably going to sound a little bit obvious, but I think to the extent that schools can really um, make themselves more accessible, that that should be a priority for schools, I, I think. And I, and that you know, I'm kind of saying that as an outsider. I'm sure like if if I were face to face with the dean of a of a big school, they'd be like, well duh, like we haven't thought of that. <laughs> But that's really the thing. Like it's, it, you know, access, obviously the cost of college is probably the, the single most um, biggest factor in terms of like access, right? So uh, if to the extent that co- that colleges can figure out how to, how to bring the costs down, uh, I think that that would bring us closer to this world where we could have it both ways, you know, where people could study in an alternative setting or go to, or go to a regular college if they wanted to. Um, college is inaccessible to a lot of people. It was inaccessible to me and it, it's inaccessible to, to people who can't afford it. And um, I mean, yeah, sure. There's, there's definitely options. There's ways around it. There's scholarships and, th- and things like that, but to make college more accessible, I think should be really one of the big goals. That is a great goal. H- have you put any thinking toward that large design problem of bringing the cost down for the, for the system at large? Any, any thoughts in that direction? You know, I wish I did. I mean, I feel like that that's <laughs> a little bit above my pay grade to, to figure <laughs> out the cost, uh, um, you know, the, how to bring the cost of college down. There's really smart people thinking about it and working on it, and mm-hmm. I hope they're able to figure it out. I, I do hope that schools recognize the urgency there. Um, you just mentioned that there's the, the content creation, content creator element and influence of um, on higher education. I, I think there's probably... I'm, I'm not the first one to say this, but like the Gen Z generation is, is slightly, uh, you know, maybe less interested in going to college than the millennials. And part part of that is because of the debt that the millennial generation had to take on. Mm-hmm. And younger people are looking at that and saying, I don't, I don't want that. And especially when it doesn't, it's not guaranteeing me a job anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so access I think is, is one component that every 
senior administrator needs to be considering, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to remaining relevant within the marketplace. The the other place that we hear a lot that is of importance is to have more skills-based education built into the curriculum so yeah. that you you have like transferable skills within the job market. And I know that you've cited companies like Google or Delta Airlines, IBM even, who've mm-hmm. shifted hiring focus from like strict de- degree requirements to rather like skills and what kind of skills-based demonstration can you provide in that hiring process? Do you see that shift equally uh, healthy for the curriculum and, f- and for the position that higher education takes in one's kind of transformative journey from high school into marketplace? I think ultimately, yeah, there might be some friction there. And in, in the beginning, maybe there's friction now because schools might see that these uh, the skills-based hiring is, as being in, in competition with what they do. Um, but I don't think they have to be. I, I think there's a lot of good groups out there. Um, one, one comes to mind, uh, Multiverse, uh, this company that works mainly out of the UK. They actually work with schools to develop skills-based curriculums and stuff like that. So like, I do think that Figuring out what the what the job market needs, and then uh, tailoring your um, your school programs to that, I, I think is obviously a a good thing. Um, the other aspect of skills based hiring that is crucially important is it gives people who don't have access to school at all a different way into into a job market. Um, mm-hmm. And companies like Google, you mentioned Google, IBM, uh, Delta Airlines, they're they're doing it largely. I think. Out of necessity, there was a there was this t- tightness in the in the labor market, and they and they need people, they need workers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they realized was that this, these some of these degree requirements were a little strict, especially when we, when we're talking about middle skills jobs that didn't necessarily need a college degree, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And now suddenly they di- they do. So in a way, we're recalibrating. I hope anyway that we're recalibrating what what the job market looks like for, for folks who want to work in, in a job that's middle skills. Yeah, that makes sense. So just to follow on question to that, then if we look at private and public sectors, so say state government sectors mm-hmm. and, and nonprofit, as well as private enterprise, if the hiring managers of these entities were to eliminate college degrees as a requirement for, for uh, job hiring, what are the potential consequences? It sounds like you're saying we're just recalibrating. Yeah. But if we were to continue to go that direction, do you see any consequences to that? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really hard to predict what the the big picture consequences would be. I would say that in the in the small scale, like you can give people a pathway into a career. That's the first step. The second step is the companies have to then, I think, be a little more proactive in in advancing their own employees and giving their own employees career development. And part, and that part of that comes from on-the-job training that some of these groups I just mentioned, um, like Multiverse, you know, also can provide. And I think maybe schools could be involved in providing on-the-job training. This would give companies more opportunity to take the employees that they hired through, through a skills-based approach and then advance them. And you create a more, I think, loyal employee in that regard, because you're investing in the employee, in the employee's future. There, there's, there's, there's a few tools out there now that actually rate companies based on how, how well they advance their, 
their own employees. I think AT&T was like the top company and it was called mm-hmm. the Opportunity Index or, or something like that. Um, so yeah. I, I think that like, you know, the bigger consequence could be a, a shift in where companies are a little bit more invested in, in the employees that they have. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's certainly a way, since there is a a high demand for high quality talent, and it's a very competitive marketplace in terms of, you know, finding those best fit candidates for any role. Um, so this could become an advantage, you know, or a benefit to the employee, if in fact, that company or that organization is offering skills-based learning that happens on the job and they're taking, you know, a, a real deep interest in advancing those employees and, and um, showing, you know, personal ownership and personal responsibility for the development of those employees. So to me, that makes a lot of sense in terms of hard skills or, you know, technical skills needed for the job. But yeah. there are those jobs like journalism that require critical thinking and intellectual growth and maturity in in thought and perspective. So do, do you see advancing intellectual growth and, and stimulating the intellect and the cognitive abilities or the soft skills? Do you, do you see that as part of on-the-job training as well? I do see that as part of life experience. Yeah. And I think I do see it's not not necessarily on the job training, but I can say in my case, you know, this is just one person's example. But you know, some of that stuff that you just mentioned, intellectual development and uh, maturity comes with working. Mm -hmm. And with with working in a career and, and, and working toward advancing that yourself in that career. Journalism is a unique example, because it's it's a crucially important industry in terms of like helping us understand the world and who gets and who tells stories about the world and what you that's a to me that's an industry you really don't want to wall off Mm -hmm. you don't want to wall that off you don't want to just make that too exclusive because then you have basically just a certain type of person (laughs) telling the stories that about the world and and give and providing the facts and information that that people really need so i I think that like, yeah, Columbia J School can produce great journalists and they obviously do, but I, I don't think it should be the only path forward, even in a, an industry like journalism that is typically seen as being on the more academic side of things. Yeah. You, you did a piece, I think it was for the New York Times that talked about how there's some HR software that's like yeah. unfairly filtering out or, or sorting the working population resumes based on higher ed credentials. Do you, do you remember that piece? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I remember my experience with them, with, the, with those, app, they call them applicant tracking systems. I remember being on the wrong side of those uh, systems for sure. Yeah. And, and in that experience, do you, do you see like a, a fundamental design change that needs to happen within the, that software? Or there's, is there a preferred way for a hiring manager to sort, quickly sort candidates or... Is that just too much of an ideal? Yeah, no, I, I think that there there are design elements, there are design changes that, that could ha- happen to make those systems a little more fair. Um, Harvard uh, Business School actually studied this this very phenomenon, and I think they estimated it was something like 34 million uh, workers were being hidden from the job market because of some of these systems that are in place that really just sort of are built to weed them out. Mm-hmm. I, my own personal experience on the wrong side of that was when I had, I think I had about a decade of experience. This is what I write about in the New York Times, uh, a decade of experience in journalism. So I was pretty, you know, established, 
Um, I got laid off at this one place that I worked at. And then I thought, well, you know, sure, I got laid off, but, you know, I, the world's my oyster now. I, you know, I have a decade of experience. I've been, you know, I, I've been an editor. I've been a writer and reporter. I've done all, I've worked from, on four different continents. Like I should be able to just get another job. And I remember I couldn't even get my resume seen because it because people were sending it back saying you don't have the minimum bachelor requirements so we can't you know we can't this job requires that so you don't you don't get you don't get through the system that was in the cases where I actually emailed the, the HR people directly to say what's going on how come no one's getting back to me sometimes I assume sometimes I wouldn't even get that far because the resume just goes into some uh, you know the, the rejection pile by default so and I don't think my experience is, is unusual. But you know, to, so to answer your question about design, I think a lot of I think a lot of these um, the people who use these applicant tracking systems now do recognize that some of the some of the filters they have in place are not necessarily fair. Um, it, it's it's a tough challenge because you're talking about really complicated software. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't I don't have all the answers, but I do think they. It's good that they're thinking about it, and they're you know there's probably people in the world of. Uh, software that are trying to figure out a better way. Well, I've seen recently a, a lot of job titles will and job descriptions will post as their requirement a certain level of education or degree requirement or the equivalent and work experience. So yeah, maybe it's as simple as changing those systems to filter kind of with two criteria in mind versus just a, a single rubric or a, a single piece of criteria. I mean, you just hit it right there. That's that's so important. That if if, but I, I think it it comes with being intentional about it. And I think that companies for a long time didn't necessarily even think about it. They just said, "Yeah, you need a bachelor's degree to, to work here." And I think now, because the discussion is happening, companies can be a little bit more intentional, and they can think about each what does each role really require. And in some cases, like you just said, it could be. Bachelor's degree is great, but also if you have five years of experience actually working in this industry, we'll 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 take that too. And I I think that like that that's a win win because it, it's better for workers and it's better for for companies. Yeah, and in in terms of access, think, thinking about it from the college application standpoint. So there's the job application standpoint that we're talking about with the HR software, yeah. and then there's the college application software and system. And that's largely dependent on GPA, you know, a, a student's financial ability to, to actually carry the tuition fee or their access to scholarship or, or loans. Uh, are there other filters? Like what's the equivalent of or relevant job experience for the college applicant? I'm, I'm wondering about that. Yeah. So that is that gets, I think, probably back to the design problem that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think that when we talk about the, how how to measure skills, mm-hmm. um, it does get a little bit challenging. There's some agreement that this needs to happen. Um, there's probably a lot of disagreement on where that you know where those um, how those uh, bar, you know how those um, parameters are set. Now, yeah. I, I do think that like a simple thing is don't just automatically filter out resumes based on a bachelor's degree if if you're right. hiring for a job that doesn't necessarily need it that's a simple thing i think the harder thing is how do we how do we then measure equivalent experience and what that means yeah. i would hope that there's pretty good software out there that could achieve that one thing that uh, we've been advocating for quite a bit in terms of the college application is taking the your university's 
values or like your guiding principles, the things that are near and dear to the identity of the university or the college and articulating some form of question. It's more qualitative, but like a prompt or a question within the application process that asks, you know, how do you feel about the value of innovation or tell us a time in your life when you displayed integrity and kind of honing in on the best fit student, not necessarily from a GPA standpoint or financial background profile, but more from a set of values and principles and, and, you know, kind of getting at the core of who the individual is. It's more like that psychographic mapping than than the, the demographic mapping that I think is, is more standard, but in that way you, you at least know, you have students who may not have the perfect academic score that you're looking for, but they're aligned on the values of what the institution supports and believes in. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great philosophy and probably a great way to to really find the best students that are, or students that are the best fit. I think it's somewhat in, in some ways it replicates the the interview process for for a job when when you yeah. go into an actual interview. If, you know, God willing, you actually get the interview. Uh, they're going to ask you questions like that. They're going to say, they're going to ask you, why do you want to work here? What, what are your, what are, what do you want to achieve in five years and things like that? So you're trying to get a well-rounded view of the person. I think in the, in the case of schools, it makes sense to do, to do that and for employers as well. So you can, you can pull out your magic wand now and you're going <laughs> to, you're going to wave your magic wand and say, okay, this is what I wish for, for the future of higher education. Yeah. Uh, more equitable, more inclusive, more accessible. What 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 does that vision look like? Uh, cheaper schools, um, I think, is probably the first thing I would say. When you when the w- that sticker shock, I think it's just such a barrier for people. And I don't think that what I'm saying here is a revelation by any means. But th- the schools, the society has to figure out how to make education more affordable. And uh, I. I don't have the answer to how to do that, but if I had a magic wand, I could I could make that happen. And I think you would solve a lot of problems there. I, I, I you know, from the, the student perspective, maybe, maybe maybe the schools would then find themselves in financial dire straits. I, I don't really know, but um, but if I have the magic wand, that's that's I think what I would wish for. That is a that is a simple wish. That uh, <laughs> yes, that one day, perhaps in an ideal society, will. I'm we'll the first one to say it. Yeah. That. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. We we never hear cheaper schools or cheaper tuition. No. Yeah, that, cheaper um, tuition is really what I meant. But you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great wish. Any final thoughts? You know, given th- think about your audience, think about your experience, and you know, obviously the the huge amount of success that you've had as a journalist. Thank you for you know lending your perspective and your expertise today. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, look, if I have to, if I'm speaking directly to people who work, you know, in the, in the world of higher education, I would say try to think about um, who your who you think your typical student is, uh, your ideal student, the the person you really think is is the, the the type of student you want to go after, and then, and then ask yourself if if that's really the student, the ideal student. I think this translates well into the job market as well, because we always we assume that we know what we're looking for as employers, as people who are dating, you know, in in the world as con, as consumers. And I think maybe schools also somewhat assume they know what they're looking for in a student. 
my words of wisdom there is, is you don't always know what you're looking for. So, th- so think about, you know, ways that you can open up your idea of what the ideal student is. And you might find that your student body is then more reflective of the broader world. Love that. Christopher Zara, ladies and gentlemen, with the final thought on this uh, wonderful higher ed happy hour, what's the best way to connect with you if, if someone you know, wants to reach out and, and learn more from you or continue to follow you? Uh, sure. I, you can, well, I, I hope people will check out the book, Uneducated. Um, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, bookshop.org, or anywhere that books are sold. I have a website, ChristopherZara.com. And of course, I'm the senior editor on the news desk at Fast Company. So I still write a lot too. You know, I, I'm mostly an editor, but once in a while I still write and I still report. So you can find me at FastCompany.com as well. Excellent. I'm sure people will take you up on that. Thank you again for your time, Christopher. It's been a pleasure to have you on today and sharing a really unique perspective. We don't always have uh, this type of discussion and this type of perspective on the show. So it's been refreshing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. For more higher ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com. 